0: Hello and welcome to You Are Not Alone. You Are Not Alone is a one with one horror actual play podcast. I'm Blaine, your host and RPG loving friend. For the front matter, if you like what you hear, please consider rating and reviewing us on whatever podcatcher you use. It really helps other folks find us. If you'd like to ask a question, recommend a game, be a guest, or just say hi, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me on Twitter at Not underscore horror or email me at You Are Not at gmail.com. Just a reminder, I have a new horror world-building podcast launching on Halloween Day called Greetings from Stability. We're going to put the first set of episodes where we play Sleep Away by J. Dragon up on this stream, we'd love if you track us down on October 31st and give us a listen. In the meantime, you can find us on all the socials at StabilityOR. This week's episode's a little bit different. We're starting a game of Mothership. If you don't know, Mothership is a really cool space horror game inspired by Alien and all the other claustrophobic horrifying movies in that vein. It uses a really cool stripped down percentile system and awesome panic and fear rules. I'm not gonna say much more because we do a deep dive on the rules in this week's episode. Normally during editing, I cut out a lot of the initial conversation and character creation so we can get right into the game. That said, my guest this week, Billy Blue and I had a really awesome conversation about horror as a medium for telling stories. We do a deep dive into the similarities of telling scary stories through visual art and written art. Might be a little bit biased, but I think it's a really interesting conversation. We also went through character creation and Billy had some really awesome ideas for his character based on little bits of detail that Mothership offers. All of this was so cool that I just didn't want to cut it. So this week's episode is that introductory conversation and character creation. Next episode, we'll jump into the game proper. So let's get to it. Joining me this week to play is the incredible artist, Billy Blue. Hey, Billy, how's it going?
1: Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me on.
0: Oh, thank you so much for for coming on. I'm really excited, uh, really excited to play this game with you. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. For sure um so to start uh i always ask uh just let the folks who are listening know who you are what you do and where on the internet that they can find you
1: cool thanks uh so like you said my name is billy blue um that's my real name not a stage name and uh i make art for uh, rpgs uh, a lot of horror and fantasy focused stuff um but i'm comfortable with anything uh I just really like being able to tell a story with a picture, and I'm lucky that I get to do that. So uh, whatever your preferred social media is, you can probably find me as billyblueart.com, all spelled out, and that'll get you there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I diving into the artwork you did before, this, uh, before we got together to record, uh, all of the art you do is really cool, but the horror art is... Uh, particularly awesome. Um, Thank
1: you. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, you're welcome. The one, the one picture that kept jumping out, you have, uh, it's like a, a cyberpunk cowboy skeleton. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a really weird phrase to say out loud. Uh, yeah. yeah. But that picture uh, is just so cool. And I think it's emblematic of, of a lot of the horror art you do. Cause a lot of the fantasy stuff has uh, like, you know, the traditional, mm-hmm high fantasy stuff that we would expect Mm -hmm. uh but then there's like this really amazing kind of stripped down usually black and white quality to the horror stuff you do Mm -hmm. uh that is just so cool
1: yeah that one turned out really good that was um that was a fun one and it was for a, a project i did with philip reed and that was almost the entire prompt he said cyberpunk skeleton cowboy or something like that. <laughs> I was like, okay, done.
0: <laughs> I, I didn't expect that to be what I was drawing, but yep. uh, now I'm here for it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, images start popping in my head and I get excited and there you go.
0: That's awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah is there, it would, this is interesting to me because, you know, mostly I, I talk to like game designers and other writers, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a usually a sort of commonality of path along those lines to, like, becoming an artist in that field. And, I, like, I've always really liked visual artists. I've always said, I, like, I became a writer because I'm a terrible painter. <laughs> um, but, like, I'm intrigued to hear if you, like, if this is even something you've thought about. Like, how, how did you get started, particularly as a horror artist? Like, mhm that seems like a, a and I feel probably similar to becoming like a horror writer. Like it's, it's a little bit weird to yeah. think about like, how do I decide that what I want to do is create some kind of art that is intentionally trying to scare people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird headspace to inhabit where you say like, I'm going to spend my days thinking of disturbing shit, you know? And uh, it's, it's fun because it's a nice catharsis. You get to kind of play around in this area, in this space. And, and then when you put your stylus down and walk away, you get to, you know, just have a normal day. So um, I think that the, I think the interesting thing about horror as a, like a genre is that it allows us to kind of put our toe in that scary water. And I, I think it's the same reason why people like roller coasters, which I happen to hate. I, I can't stand roller coasters. And my wife is a huge roller coaster fan. And she's even turning our kids into roller coaster fans. So they show me up. And oh, no. My son is eight and he's like, I want to do the loop-de-loop. And I'm like, I want to go sit down and have a dog."
0: You, you go on the loop-de-loop with your yeah. mom. Yep, yep. I will stay here and watch. Exactly. Yeah. I,
1: I'm the guy who gets, you know, carsick like, unless I'm driving, I have a really weak stomach. Um, but it's funny because I can, I can draw, you know, any kind of disturbing whatever's, but if I so much as look at a roller coaster, I'm like, Oh boy.
0: Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I like, I'm in the same boat as you. Like I hate roller coasters. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Mm -hmm, Like in any stretch of the imagination, and it's interesting because I think like so much of especially modern horror is like, you know, I call it jump scare horror mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where like it's not necessarily really about like messing with your mind. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, you're going to shut the shut the medicine cabinet. We're going to play a loud noise and there's going to be something in the mirror that wasn't there before. Yeah. And it's you jump. Steep, you but know? then like once the adrenaline spike is down, you kind of just walk away from it. Yeah, the same as you were before. And I think that a lot of like, there's a lot of overlap between the people who like those kinds of horror films and the people who love roller coasters and anything that spikes their adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm like, I want to watch the horror movie that like destroys a little part of me inside. (laughs) And like, I want to walk away forever changed. Yeah, yeah. By my experience.
1: Yeah, I'm the same. And, and we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, how much we love the alien franchise. And, uh, I think one of the reasons why I like that so much is because they have some jump scares, but really what the, the type of horror that movie is, is using is tension and suspense. And it's the moment before something jumps out at you that I think is the most scary. And, uh, that's what that movie does so well is that kind of constant dread. There's something out there in the shadows or, you know, in the pipes or just on the other side of the door. And if it gets in, you're screwed. So it's, it's, uh, that's my preferred style of horror. And that's also kind of what I like to do when I'm making my own art. Um, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of interest in like, uh, chainsaw massacre blood and guts style of of image I'm more like let's make it unsettling so that so that after you're done looking at it it still affects you
0: yeah and that's I think that's what probably drew me to your art the most is it isn't it's not gory, overly example. graphic or gory or mm-hmm. anything like that it's the type of art that you look at and you're like I really like this but also there's something about it that I deeply do not like.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that um, not only is that, I think, just fun to create for me as a as a creator, but also as a viewer, I just think it's so much more impactful um, than just a simple jump scare, you know, or the still image equivalent of a jump scare. Um, but yeah, I, I like to convey that by... Um, for anyone who hasn't seen the image that uh, you're talking about, it's it's a very gritty style and it's very kind of scratchy and a little splattery and kind of not so clean. And I think that that um, is a lot of fun to create and also really kind of helps evoke um, a mood. And almost, it's almost like when you look at those characters, you can tell the the environment that they're standing in and you know, the, the smells and the sounds and the textures all just, uh, from an image. And that's really what I'm trying to convey, um, with my artwork is that I want you to feel like you're there or you feel like you understand that character, um, in a really kind of quick and visceral and impactful way.
0: That is, that's fascinating. And it like, it, it works. It is mm-hmm. in all of the horror images I've seen from your work. It, it is fascinating how evocative they are. And I was thinking mm-hmm. like, like I was looking at your whole portfolio and like comparing the fantasy art you do. Like I said, like, you know, you have a lot more kind of detail
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the fantasy pictures where, you know, you'd see rippling muscles or yeah. like, it's a
1: little more traditional. Like what you'd see in like 5e, yeah. Uh Uh-huh.
0: And then when you look at the the horror stuff you do, like a lot of that like more in-depth detail is stripped out. Mm -hmm. But there's something about the way you present the image that like you absorb more on a subconscious level than like staring at it and like looking at all the little details. Yeah. Uh, It does, it really like teleports you to that place.
1: Yeah, that's that's funny. Um, That's exactly the mindset I'm in when I'm creating that kind of stuff. And I think it, it goes back to what we were saying about what what makes good horror work for me. And I think honestly, just a lot of good image making, too, is when all of the details are not spelled out. And specifically that works for horror, because I think what humans are really scared of is the unknown and the unknowable. And I think that's why things like uh, the Cthulhu Mythos are so impactful, even you know, so long after they were written. And even a lot of the, um, the way that, that those things are written, they leave a lot of blank space, a lot of vagueness, you know? and they don't describe every single tentacle and every gross eyeball. You know. They, they leave some of it up to your imagination and to me, that's just so much more fun as a consumer of art and also as a creator of art. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why I like to have such a kind of gritty style is because I can evoke the feeling I want you to feel without having to spell out every rivet and stitch in his armor and, you know, spell it out for you. I like to respect my audience and let them kind of fill in some of those blanks. And I have a... a one of my strengths as an artist is I have a pretty wide range of styles I can do. Uh, you mentioned the more like full color, fully painted stuff, which looks more like something you'd see in like a 5e publication. There's the gritty kind of horror stuff, which is like a, it has a very Morkborg style aesthetic. Um, I mean, I, I've done like, uh, kids lit style cartoony, you know, I, I can do a lot of different things, but Honestly, I think my favorite type of image to create is gritty, scary, evocative, that kind of stuff.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And it is like, it is really cool. It had me thinking, like, as someone who's a horror writer uh, Mm -hmm. and also like a horror storytelling in the podcast format, like, one of the interesting things about trying to like write horror, like you said, is, you know, this idea of trying to leave in a way like inviting the reader into the creation process mm-hmm. giving them mm-hmm. some big de- like big details but then leaving the rest for their mind to create and like even even if i'm writing something where the the general narrative is more poetic or or more um kind of illustrative or imagistic like i mm-hmm. noticed personally when like when i move to talking about something horrific and like this is true I, too of like Stephen King, uh, all of Lovecraft's writing is kind of like this. Even outside of the horror, but like mm-hmm. you almost turn into a journalist because mm-hmm. you want to present like this matter of factness. Mm-hmm. Where if you give if you give the consumer of your art too much, it becomes easier for them to remove themselves from it. And yeah. so it becomes this, like, very stripped down, like, Hemingway-esque style of writing where, like, you you start using shorter sentences and less descriptive images. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really kind of interesting for me to, like, really look at your body of art and see that, like, when you switched from fantasy to horror, like, you're doing the same thing visually yeah. that yeah. horror writers are doing with words
1: yeah yeah that's it's funny that you mentioned that because um two big literary influences on me um are Stephen King and Ernest Hemingway.
2: <laughs>
1: and I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head with the fact that it's it's more show don't tell, and I just personally that appeals to me so much it's it's the difference between the viewer sitting and observing your art versus the viewer observing your art and kind of falling into it and feeling like they are a part of it. And that's really what I'm going for. I don't want you to sit back and feel like you are a person viewing a product. I want you to feel like, Oh wow, this, this monster is right in front of me and I can smell its breath.
0: Yeah. And that is, that, that is like with something like horror, I think that, cause you know, you are, your intent is to rattle. hmm the viewer in some way and like there's yeah. so much catharsis in that and like I, i'm often just because by my nature i'm kind of self-deprecating like i i will often joke mm-hmm. about like how weird it is that like i love horror as much as i do but like i think psychologically speaking horror is such a powerful thing and like as someone who is an english major and a creative writing major we learned a lot about catharsis and like i don't think that there exists a genre that is more pure catharsis than horror. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because horror is like, it's so, it's so foundational in the human experience. And like, obviously we're not dealing with strange eldritch monsters from outer space coming to consume us, but like the world is by its nature, scary. Yeah. And by consuming horror, the catharsis comes in this like really powerful way of like being able to teach your body how to exist calmly and rationally in mm-hmm. the moments of horror that you find in the real world. Um, and like you said, inviting people in is I think the most important aspect of horror, because if you're not invited in, if you can keep a level of separation, it's not going to do what it needs to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Separation. That's a, that's a good word for it. It's that's the, the, opposite of what i want to accomplish you know i don't want you to feel removed i want you if i if you feel removed while you're feeling a piece of my artwork then i've failed my job that's how i view it and a good way to do that is by you know leaving some of that leaving some of the vagueness in there um i was i think it was actually hemingway he said something like uh i'm sure i'm gonna jack this quote up but the gist of it is the, the dignity of the movement of the iceberg is due to the fact that 90% of it is below water. And I think that's so cool because he's basically saying it's what you don't see that is important and makes yeah. up. It. What you don't see is really what makes up how you perceive the little bit you do see. And I feel like that applies so well to art in general, but also to horror specifically. And then it just ties right back into someone like, uh, uh, Lovecraft who, you know, his whole shtick is the universe is too big for you to understand. And that's what makes it scary.
0: Yeah. And he really was like all, all feelings about Lovecraft as a human being aside. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He had mastered that concept of like, I'm going to give you probably not even 10%. Yeah. Right. Uh, and In my writing, I'm going to flat out tell you that it is like the other 98% of what I'm not giving you is yeah. so awful. Mm-hmm. And like the reason I'm not giving it to you is because the human mind
1: can't handle it. Yeah. If I give you 1% more, you are just completely off the deep end.
0: And there is something like that. that Eldritch horror in general is one, especially like from a literary standpoint, is one of my favorites just because of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That idea of like this universe is so big and cold and uncaring.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm the kind of guy who I just, I sit around and think, you know, deep thoughts or what I think are deep thoughts. I don't know. And that's one of the things that literally will keep me up at night is I think like, Oh man, I, I landed this big job or I got this promotion or whatever. And then my stupid brain is like, do you think anyone on Mars cares about that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, well, thanks a lot.
0: Great. I thought
1: this was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, if you really want to blow your mind as big as our solar system is, which is, you know, is to me, it's like a, I'm a grain of sand, you know, compared to our solar system. But then our solar system is a grain of sand compared to our galaxy. And our galaxy is a grain of sand compared to our universe. And it's just like, okay, stop. I'm just blowing my mind repeatedly.
0: Yeah. It's turtles all the way down. Like I often think about how small I am in comparison to like, even just the town I live in.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: Let alone like the state, the country, Mm -hmm. the world, like we are all so small on every level.
1: Yeah, yeah, just completely insignificant. And I just, I think that it's, it makes sense that those are the kind of thoughts that preoccupy me because, you know, look at the kind of media I consume and, you know, it ties in with the way I think about the world. Yeah. It's fun and scary at the same time.
0: Yeah. And it is like, that's the kind of headspace that you have to like force yourself to get into to make art.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's
0: not always the healthiest, especially when you're making like horror art and, I think most people I know who make horror art are are naturally predisposed to thinking like that anyway. So it's just, you know, I guess it turns into what came first, the chicken or the egg.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was
0: I drawn to this because this is already kind of how my brain was wired? Or is my brain wired uh, because I started, you know, reading Lovecraft stories and watching... John Carpenter movie is way too young.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, All the time I'll be, I'll put on a movie or something for my wife. And I'll be like, oh, this is a, this is one of my favorite things as a kid. And then like 20 minutes in and we're both like, wait, you watch this as a kid? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, the thing and and things like that. And even more mainstream things like the X-Files, I watch them now. And I'm like, God, how did little Billy, you know, sit through this stuff? But yeah, that's,
0: yeah, there was a, like, a, you know, product of another time sort of thing. like, neither of us are terribly old, but like, mm-hmm. it feels like we're probably of roughly the same, same age. And like, mm-hmm. I look back at the stuff, like my parents were very good parents and I have no complaints about their parenting. But I do look at some of the stuff that I was allowed to consume as a child.
1: Oh <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. That they like had
0: no, I, one of my earliest memories is going to see uh Jason Takes Manhattan. Oh wow. In the movie theater. With your Which parents? I believe that came out in 1989, which means I was 5 years old. <laughs> and my parents decided that it was okay to take a 5-year-old to see Jason Takes Manhattan in the theater. Yeah,
1: yeah. Makes sense. Like things.
0: both of my parents, my mom is a huge horror literature fan. She grew up reading Stephen King and my dad loves horror movies. So like, I remember, you know, every Friday, the 13th, my dad and I would sit down and watch the Friday, the 13th marathon that came on. And like, they were both very into horror, which influenced me. And so like Mm -hmm. for them, I guess they were just like, whatever, like he's five, he can handle it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which sounds funny now that I'm not five.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like thinking about like, yeah, I don't have any kids, but like I have godchildren and nieces mm-hmm. and stuff and like if I found out my best friend showed my goddaughter Jason Takes Manhattan when she was five
1: <laughs> yeah, I,
0: yeah I like not that I have any room to say yeah. anything as someone who is not a parent but I would also still think alright that seems a little questionable
1: yeah exactly yeah no I, I know exactly how you feel my, my son is eight and I have to kind of remind myself all the time that like you know go at a certain pace because just because you watched it, you know, it doesn't mean that he should.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And especially like, you know, it it may very well be that you have a child who can handle that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, eventually something broke me where I avoided horror for a couple of years.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Like as a late child, early... Uh, early teen and it was a very short, like maybe like four year window. It was actually, it was killer clowns from outer space.
1: Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, There's a scene in that where a
0: bunch of like clown heads pop out of a hamper. (laughs) And the problem with that was we had the exact same hamper. Oh no. In our bathroom. And like, that's what broke me is that like, it was like, you know, the literally the exact same hamper. And so like Mm -hmm. after seeing that movie, I like I had to use the upstairs bathroom because the downstairs bathroom I could not
1: go oh. into. Oh yeah, that's that's funny because um uh you mentioned Stephen King earlier and he has a really good book um about being a writer and it's called On Writing. And he gave advice like how to make something disturbing, you know. And he said something to the effect of Take something familiar, and just slightly nudge it into a disturbing territory, and that, to him, and I, I, to me as well, is way more scary than like you know the the splatter, gory blood and guts in your face, screaming kind of thing, you know. And uh, that 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 one small detail of your hamper had such a big effect on you that it actually changed the media you wanted to consume when you were a big fan of it previously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing what, what that can do and like rooting horror in, in the real,
1: Mm -hmm. in the familiar
0: is so powerful. And I think about like, even like once I got back into horror, one of the like first movies that really sat with me in a way that like deeply affected my life was uh, the American remake of the ring.
1: Oh, yeah. And just oh, that concept no. of a,
0: like, blank cassette, like, a blank VHS tape, which, like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, people of that generation were, so like, I had probably hundreds of VHS tapes mm-hmm. like, sitting around the house I grew up in, and, like, most of them were, like, legitimate VHS tapes, but then there's the one that, you know, like, my mom recorded the It miniseries on mm-hmm. uh, that just had, like, a piece of tape on it, and, like, sometime that would come off, and, like, Having the horror of the ring so deeply rooted in this idea of just like a blank v h s tape,
1: yeah, 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 in a in a very everyday familiar object,
0: yeah, and I mean, I imagine now, like if your son were to watch the ring um
1: it would hit it probably way, it?
0: hits different, yeah, uh, when yeah. you're like what like what the heck is that thing? I've never seen one of those before, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And we would have um, to remake it with like a a tablet or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, because like I like think I'm like you could do it like even a DVD wouldn't. Where like most of the time now mm-hmm. kids aren't even used to DVDs. Like everything is digital.
1: Yeah, yeah. Remember when Netflix used to come in the mail?
0: Yeah, that is <laughs> it's wild, wild to think that that
1: it was it was ancient history. You know, like five years ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it feels like it was three generations ago, but it was really not that long, but man, what a shift.
0: Yeah, everything has has sped up so fast and like I just I moved maybe 6 months ago. And like one of the things I was packing up and like as I was packing up, realized that I needed to just get rid of most of it was my DVD library. Yep. Cuz I'm like I'm looking at it and I'm like this is like eight boxes of DVDs that need to get moved. Mm-hmm. And I'm like I like When was the last time I actually put a DVD into a DVD player to watch it?
1: Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's the, I went through the same thing and it's like, I was looking at my DVD collection thinking I have every movie ever made like at a click of a button and I don't really need to do this, this giant, like, you know, the Velcro case thing with a handle. Oh yeah. looks like a briefcase almost. Yep. Yeah, you
0: know. yeah, yeah, because I'm like, I could like go downstairs and find my DVD, and then I have to watch it downstairs because that's yeah. where my DVD player is, yeah, or I can like resubscribe to Netflix for nine dollars mm-hmm. and just watch it on my computer
1: and get everything.
0: Uh, and usually the resubscribing to Netflix wins,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, it's funny, it's definitely changed not only how we consume, cause that's kind of what it is. It's a different way, but also what we consume because I've found so many shows and movies that I never would have heard of just because Netflix starts recommending them to me, you know, or whatever streaming service. Yeah. And if I was to buy all those DVDs, it would fill up my house.
0: Yeah. I can't even, especially like back when like TV series DVDs used to be massively expensive.
1: Yeah. And it's like, if
0: I want to buy one season of Carnival, it's $80. Isn't
1: that crazy? Or I could pay $9 and just binge watch the entire thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because especially at this point, like some of those old HBO shows that used to be like the most expensive, Mm -hmm. HBO is throwing them up on on HBO Max. Like, we don't care. Like, no one cares about these shows anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's funny. It's... uh, the The algorithms they use to recommend things. I've discovered like so many new shows and just interest that I didn't realize I had, you know? Because I start watching one thing and it recommends another thing and I'm like, oh, okay, now I kind of have a, I'm in a groove now and I'm discovering all these cool things. Things from other countries and, you know, things from before I was born and things like that. I was able to watch all the Doctor Who I want. Yeah. And it's like, how much would that cost me to buy, you know, decades worth of box DVD sets from another country?
0: Yeah. Who knows? Like I, you know, Dr. Who was one of those things that for the longest time it was like, I might catch an episode like once a year on PBS when they were yeah. like, you know, we're going to throw up an episode of Dr. Who. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: exactly. And like Dr. Who is fascinating to me too. Cause that's one of those shows where like so much of the, Old Doctor Who is just unavailable because there was a fire mm-hmm. at BBC that destroyed a lot of the original films. So there are like hundreds of early Doctor Who episodes that, like, they're just like those are lost now. Wow. Um, and then you look at how much actual old Doctor Who is available, and you're like, how how was there a hundred more episodes? Of this? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. That's one series that you can definitely get lost in. My wife and I are big Whoians. Uh,
0: that's awesome! Yeah, I I love Doctor Who. My my the library in my hometown had a couple old Doctor Who VHS tapes. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and then like when Doctor Who came back, like I had kind of forgotten about it, and I was like, oh, that's right, this show.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're actually um, gearing up for a, a new season with a new doctor right now.
0: I'm yeah, excited. I'm excited. I've been trying to catch up because I actually haven't watched any of the Jodie Whittaker stuff. I. Uh, mm-hmm. I like I liked Peter Capaldi, but I was like I became such I was at first I was a huge David Tennant fan. Like he was oh, me too. such a fantastic actor. Yeah. And then character. like when Matt Smith replaced him, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like this guy's okay, but like mm-hmm. do I really want to reinvest? And then they did such a good job of getting you to reinvest in Matt Smith.
1: Yeah, he he turned out really great
0: yeah and then once matt smith left i like i finally was like all right i don't think i have the emotional energy <laughs> uh yeah to yeah. do this all over again so i watched like the first season with capaldi and like it was good and i liked uh-huh. what capaldi was doing with it but
1: mm-hmm.
0: it was just one of those shows where it kind of fell off for me and mm-hmm. now like i've heard really good things about jody whitaker and i'm really excited i'm blanking on the new guy's name
1: uh gosh it's something very unfamiliar to my ear and yeah <laughs> Incuti something. Yes, I, I, I that sounds right.
0: That. Yeah. Um, but like I'm really excited to see what he does with it, and so like I'm finally trying to like finish up the Capaldi episodes.
1: Yeah, um, I I was a, a big big Tenant fan. He's he's my doctor, you know. And uh, Capaldi, he took me a little bit to kind of get into, um, but. His his first season was good, but then they kind of got better and better. And I was like, by the end, I was a big fan. And I'm like, okay, he he was able to put his stamp on it, you know, which they all do. It's it's pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, and that's the like that's the fascinating thing about the show, where like you know built into the DNA, you know, it wasn't necessarily their original plan to have the doctor regenerate, but like when mm-hmm. the first the first actor episode ever was like, I need to, I need to stop this, and they're like. Shit, what do we do?
1: (laughs) We're not going to stop. You can, uh,
0: and like building that into the DNA of like this character is it's kind
1: of genius, right?
0: Someone who will constantly change appearances, uh, and like they have become very good at finding ways to like make you buy in because like everyone every Doctor Who fan has their doctor, whether Uh they're old school Doctor Who fans and it's you know Tom Baker or. Mm Any of the old Doctor Who's or, you know, they're more new school fans like everyone has their doctor. But the show does a good job of getting you invested, even if it isn't your doctor.
1: Yeah. And I think I think that show is an interesting case because the the structure of the character that you're describing, it kind of requires you to let him go and then reinvest in him or her yeah on a regular basis and that's a really that's a really weird thing to ask of your audience you know but they make it work and if you can make it work it's kind of genius because you can have this series last forever you know and do different things with it because you're always getting new actors
0: yeah and it is like and it's i like i personally i know like there are people in the who universe who hate this but like once they started like changing genders and changing ethnicities, like to me, that's where it gets really fascinating because mm-hmm. like, that's what you can do when your character constantly changes.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the, uh that's the benefit of having a character like that is that you can explore new areas. If he was still having to be a 60 year old British white guy, his series wouldn't be around for this long because I mean, how many stories can you tell from one perspective, you know? And it's, it's that's a big part of the Doctor's character is that he has this incredibly vast experience which gives him such a unique and outside perspective, you know? So he shouldn't be tied down to this one tiny little box that he has to check because that's kind of anti to his whole character, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's such a like, such a fascinating way to like. Okay, so this this character is an alien, so they are by their nature, alien, alien, <laughs> whole, yeah. wholly different. Mm-hmm. But like, as humans, like we can th- play like mind games that make us. You know, we're talking about role playing games here. Like, uh-huh. I can play a role playing game where I pretend to be an elf, or I pretend to be someone of another gender, Um and like I can play those logic puzzles out in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, that's one of the beautiful things about role-playing games is it lets you build empathy in that way. Yeah. Uh, but like, how do you do that in a television show or a movie where your main character is an alien and having them constantly change and live all of these different experiences, especially like when they come to earth and it's like, all right, like now I'm an entirely different person. I have a different face. I have a different gender. I have a different skin color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just the it's core to the doctor's DNA from like a filmmaking perspective. Now mm-hmm. that his experience or her experience or their experience is wholly different than any other human's experience, while still grounding it in a way that like we as humans from Earth can begin to empathize with.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now that's that's nail on the head. He's so different and so kind of has a, a wide experience, but somehow still relatable. And that's, that's the whole gig. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that it kind of only works if you can sub out a new actor every now and then, you know?
0: Yeah, you it, couldn't do that with... CGI or costumes, Yeah. Like it yeah. needs to be that fundamental change of like, here's a new actor. And the new series has done such a good job of just like making it horrifying and gut wrenching and sad when the mm-hmm. doctor turns. And like, Yeah. Oh man. Know. Tenet,
1: Tenet, he broke my heart.
0: Uh, yeah. Every time I just think about yeah his delivery of, I don't want to go. Oh God. And you're like, no,
1: no, I don't want you to go either. <laughs> Stay with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that, uh, he improvised that line in the moment.
0: Oh, uh, I mean, that makes it, sense. Like is such he a good really actor. He
1: didn't want to go. And it's like, oh man, <sighs> oh,
0: that, that makes just it, makes it worse. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It only, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny because the doctor obviously doesn't die. His character, he regenerates, but when you lose the actor like that, it kind of feels like a death. And I think that that line shows that's probably how that actor was thinking of it. It's like, my time has come and I need to pass on and I don't want to go, but
0: yeah, this was great. But like either like the story needs it or my career needs it. Like Mm -hmm. some, for some reason, Mm -hmm. this transition has to happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like
0: you get so into that character. Mm hmm that like it must be hard to walk away from
1: yeah i think that it for me personally it just it almost seems like a it it seems relatable to me because it's like that's what humans go through you know at the end of their life at at the moment of their own death and you know it's 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 gut-wrenching and it's like there's nothing you can do about it and you just have to accept it and hopefully you have a good time while you're here You know, and I think that's one of the things that makes the doctor so cool is that he kind of keeps going, you know, but he also still has those moments that you can definitely relate to. You know, that one line specifically just made me feel like, oh man, my boy's dying, you know, but yeah, the story keeps going. And that's, I mean, that's the world, that's the earth, that's life.
0: Yeah. Oh man.
1: On that happy note.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's play some role-playing <laughs> games. Yeah. Alright, uh, so Mothership is a percentile-based role-playing game. You're going to have four stats, strength, speed, intellect, and combat uh, that are going to range somewhere between 6 and 60. Uh, there are four saves, sanity, Uh, which is when something defies the laws of uh, the universe in some way. Uh, You'll make a sanity save to see if it uh, causes you stress or not. Fear uh, revolves around um, things that are scary, but stay within the realm of potentiality. Um, Body is your save when you're hungry or you're fighting a disease or an infection uh, or a poison, anything like that. And then armor is your save when you're about to take damage. Uh, you make an armor save to see if uh, if you can resist the damage that you're taking or not. Um, in addition to those, the other big thing that Mothership has is it has a set of skills uh, that are going to give you either 10, 15, or 20% bonus to your check. Uh, so you add whatever the, the skill bonus is to whatever attribute you're rolling uh, at the time, and that will kind of depend on exactly what you're trying to do. So there's a computer skill that gives you plus 10%. So most of the time, computers are going to be tied to your intellect. Uh, so you would add your take your intellect, add 10, roll percentiles, and you're trying to get under that number. Uh, but if like there's a lot of pressure and you're trying to hack into a system, I might call for a speed computers check uh instead of an intellect so the game kind of separates skills and attributes in that way that like you can use whatever attribute and skill combination seems relevant in the current narrative of the story cool so the one of the nice things i love the mothership character sheet because it's literally just a flow chart uh that walks you through uh walks you through character creation and makes everything super simple for you. Yeah, what a great idea. The first time I saw this, I was like, this is the greatest character sheet I've ever (laughs) seen.
1: Yeah, I was like, why is not everyone doing this? We should be doing this all the time.
0: Yeah. Um, So the other important thing to note is uh, your stress. Stress always starts at 2.00. And the main way you're going to end up taking stress is f- failing sanity or fear saves. Uh, generally, whenever you fail a sanity or fear save, you're going to gain one stress. Um, at certain times, sometimes if the thing causing you stress is so horrifying, uh, I might ask you to immediately make a panic check. Other times, I might just make you make a panic check when certain external forces seem like it makes sense. And for panic checks, what you're doing is you're going to roll 2 2d10. Two and you want to roll over your, pa- your, over your stress number. Uh, so your stress starts out pretty low. So it's pretty easy to succeed at your panic checks. But as your stress gets higher, uh, it becomes harder and harder. And if you fail a panic check, uh, you panic. And we're going to roll on a chart uh, to see what happens to your character. Uh, it might just be that they run away um as your stress gets higher so when you roll the 2d when you roll the panic check if or the panic result if you panic you add your current stress to it uh and so the more stress you have the worse the effect is going to be and i think it's a 30 which means that you would have to roll two 10s and have 10 stress uh but a 30 is you die instantly oh wow so that's pretty rare but it is, uh, it is possible when your stress gets super high uh, to have the result be that you just die. Mm-hmm. Um, I doubt in a single session we're going to get to that point um, in my experiences playing this, but it is worth noting that uh, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing you're going to want to do is you're going to roll uh, 6d10 for each of your stats to find out your starting stat.
1: Just straight on down the line?
0: Yep. Uh and like I said when we were kind of discussing this earlier, uh I do usually let uh let people switch two of the, the value for two of their stats. So like if you want to play a scientist and your strength is super high and your intellect is super low, uh you can swap your strength and intellect. So mm-hmm. gotcha. uh to start just do six D ten down the line.
1: Gotcha. Oh boy!
0: <laughs> also, if all of your stats are super low, I generally let people reroll.
1: Yeah, six D ten, so that the average would probably be around like thirty five or so.
0: Yeah, 30, right about thirty five.
1: Yeah. This is going to be interesting.
0: <laughs> where Where are we at so far? All right,
1: so going straight down the line: uh, twenty eight strength, eighteen speed. 29 intellect and 40 combat.
0: All right. So your combat's pretty good.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's funny because that's the one I wanted to have the least of. <laughs> I was thinking of playing an android.
0: Okay. Uh, and so each of whatever class you pick, there's four classes Teamster, Scientist, Android, and Marine. Mm-hmm. Each one of those uh, modifies your. Uh, Starting statistics. So scientists get plus ten to intellect, mm-hmm. and android gets plus five to intellect and speed. Mm. Uh, so yeah, if you wanted to swap your combat with your speed or intellect, you can certainly do that and be
1: gotcha. So, what all does speed encompass? I'm I'm besides the office?
0: Speed is generally going to be kind of your your dexterity stats, so if you're trying to, like, use stealth um, or do something that's kind of, like, more dexterous athletics-type stuff, uh, speed is going to come into play there. Speed is also, if combat breaks out, it may not. This isn't necessarily a combat-heavy game.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, speed is uh, how you determine initiative.
1: Okay, gotcha you know what i am just i'm gonna be i'm gonna be bold i'm just gonna let it ride
0: okay Ah, all right um
1: so yeah i am gonna do android
0: okay perfect uh so as an android it tells you right in the saves area Mm -hmm. uh those are your starting saves so androids are really good against fear they have an 85 percent chance of uh succeeding at fear checks
1: and the plus five does that only apply to the stats
0: That only applies to the stats.
1: Hence the arrows. Okay, cool. Um, So so yeah,
0: your speed will go up to 23. Mm -hmm. And your intellect will go up to 34. Got it. So then to note, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, with the exception of the Teamsters, every class has something that messes with other people around them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the android, uh, anytime someone needs to make a fear save in your presence they have disadvantage uh that's going to be less relevant since this is a one-on-one game uh but like if you do something to terrify uh an npc uh and they need to make a fear save that will influence their fear saves as well
1: oh okay see i didn't even think of that i can be more intimidating yes you
0: can you can try to make yourself uh extra terrifying
1: and is is the logic there because androids are kind of just disturbing on a base level?
0: Yeah, they they are un, something about them just makes people feel on edge. Yeah, when they're around. Which, having watched Alien a lot of times, mm-hmm. I certainly understand.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool.
0: So yeah, for our listeners, uh, like if if you pick other classes, uh, scientists. When a sa- scientist fails a sanity save every friendly player nearby gains one stress, uh, in Marines, whenever a Marine panics, all friendly players must make fear saves, uh, which is kind of cool. Like if a scientist's, uh, concept of reality is challenged, it is terrifying for other people to see. Uh, and if, a, uh, if a Marine panics, you are, uh, likely to realize that you are in a very bad place.
1: <laughs> Game over, man. Game over.
0: Um, The Teamsters are the one class that doesn't get screwed. Uh, Once per session, Teamsters can re-roll a roll on the Panic Effect table. Uh, Which is nice, because like I said, uh, one of the options on the Panic uh, Table is just straight up death. So the Teamsters (laughs) generally save that re-roll for... That would
1: be a good time to use that, I guess.
0: Yeah, avoiding uh, just straight up having a heart attack. Yeah. Um... Awesome, so yeah, that is your saves and stats and your stress and panic uh, thing. So the next thing you're going to do is pick skills. So, uh, androids start with computers, mathematics, and linguistics for free. Those are all uh, trained level. So the way skills in this work is in order to take a skill that is of a higher level than trained, you have to have one of the skills that points to it on the flow chart.
1: Oh, like a prerequisite.
0: Yeah, so like if you wanted to take pathology as an expert skill, you need to have first aid as a trained skill. Uh, If you wanted to take psychology or genetics, you need to have biology. Some have uh, multiple skills that point to them, like uh, vehicle specialization is pointed at by mechanical repair, driving, and piloting. Uh, You just have to have one of those.
1: So it's a skill, a skill tree like pretty familiar to like, RPG video game players?
0: Yes, yeah. It is, uh, it is very much that kind of video game skill tree uh, with branching paths. And so it costs one point to buy a trained skill, two points to buy an expert skill, and three to buy a master skill. Uh, as an android, you start with two points uh, in addition to the three free skills you get. So you can either buy one expert skill that you have a prerequisite for uh, which increases the bonus up to 15%, uh, or you could buy two different trained skills.
1: Okay, and as far as these uh, skills I'm looking at, uh, is it pretty much just GM call what they encompass, or is there a really strict definition for each one?
0: There is a like loose definition for each mm-hmm. one. Let me double check the page in the player's guide. I can, if you have questions about a specific skill, mm-hmm. I can give you their kind of, like I said, it's fairly nebulous. So it's a lot of, uh, I would say GM and player interpretation.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Most likely I'm going to start out by saying like, I think this would be a speed driving test, but if you have something else that you think might, uh, work mm-hmm. in its place. You can certainly pitch that.
1: Let's see here.
0: Um, because uh, like to give you an example, the definition of botany is just the study of plant life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of them are fairly nebulous in that. Like, if you can come up with a good pitch, why mm-hmm. X skill would make sense in this situation?
1: I like that. I like I like the games uh that I play when it's kind of like. Uh, state your case.
0: Yeah. And I really I like, and like a lot of help. games mention this in like d- the DMing section, but like, I like that mothership has completely disattached attributes and skills.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Cause like, even like a game like fifth edition, like in the GMing section, it does say like, you know, if it makes more sense to use dexterity with stealth in this or uh, dexterity with Athletics in x situation mm-hmm. like certainly do that, but it's still, when you look at the list of skills in five v has an attribute listed
1: yeah, yeah, this one is much more detached. I like that
0: um and I like being able to say, because I do like those like in the moment calls, like I said, but the example I always use is like if you're hacking a, a computer, most of the time that's going to be intellect computers, but like if you're being chased down by a monster. And you need to hack that computer before the monster gets you like that becomes a speed thing because you're trying to do it in a very short condensed period of time. And chances are, if you're the hacker, your intellect is going to be higher than your speed Mm -hmm. and it adds like an extra level of pressure Mm -hmm. um, to be like, all right, like I'm doing this in less than optimal conditions. Mm
1: hmm. Well, I think I'm going to take. I'm going to spend two of my points to uh, take hacking in the expert column.
0: Excellent. And.
1: Okay, um, I want to make sure I understand this. If I. Okay, forget hacking. Do I have to. I have three points to play with, so does that mean I spend two on expert and then three more to go to master? Yes. Okay. Or no,
0: just, no, it would be 3 points total to buy a master skill.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, so, so if,
0: if you have something I think most of the master skills require an expert skill, but some of them I don't think do. So, if there is oh, one God that like here. you have the Oh, yeah, like uh sophontology, let's just double check what exactly that means. That
1: so, one goes straight from trained to master, which is very interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, and
1: I'm not going to pretend I know what self-ontology means
0: Yeah, I'm not I am not yeah. either uh, Let's see It is alien psychology Oh,
1: how cool Well, now I'm interested in that
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, So yeah, so you can go straight from ling- linguistics uh, Or like the other path is biology to psychology And expert to sophontology ontology mm-hmm. master mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so soft ontology, you could take.
1: Yeah, it's it's a matter of prerequisite. Gotcha. So um, I think I'm actually going to stick with hacking for my expert. Okay, and, and then you can one buy one more. other
0: trained skill.
1: Uh, let's mix it up. I'm going to go military training. Okay. And I think that's all three of my points.
0: Yep. I like that. Like you're a little bit of a combat droid. You can yeah. You can scrap when you need to scrap. Um, well, I got I got
1: forty sure. combat points. I figure I might as well use them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is. I mean, forty yeah. combat points would make you an excellent marine. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you've decided to go the the intellectual route. I like it. Yeah,
1: I I like to think that he's uh, he thinks of himself as like a thinker, and he's obviously as strong as a bear, but he doesn't kind of uh, consider that part of himself when he thinks of himself, you know, he kind of forgets about his strength because his strength is so off the charts compared to a human that he doesn't want to stand out.
0: I like that a lot. That is a, that is a really cool take. Uh, So we have two last things to do. Uh, (laughs) The first is you're going to pick a loadout, um, which is going to give you your starting gear. Uh, So there is excavation, which gives you a lot of stuff about, uh, like, getting into locked places. You get crowbars and lockpicks and stuff like that. Um, There is exploration, which is going to give you, uh, like, a surveying kit and a rebreather to breathe underwater. Not that you need to worry about that necessarily. Uh, Binoculars, camping gear, that kind of stuff. Uh, There's extermination, which is going to give you a bunch of weapons. Uh, and, uh, some healing ability stuff. And then there's examination, which is going to give you, uh, a lot of like medical stuff. So scalpels, med scanners, pain pills. Uh,
1: well, I have a question since I am an Android of uh, how does healing work for me as you know, besides just the resting, I, I imagine I wouldn't take like a pain pill, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, the rules don't. Necessarily dive too deep into that. Like, Mm -hmm. I would say it would probably be more of like a mechanical repair check if you take damage than a Mm -hmm. like first aid check.
1: Mm -hmm. So then, uh, would any of the kits? I'm I'm really interested in keeping myself alive, so I'm just curious if any of the kits would lend towards that,
0: or are they more human focused when it comes to? They tend tend to be a little bit more human focused. So let's take a look at. I would say. excavation almost. Cause that would give you like a hand welder.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. I would be like welding my leg back on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that as like a visual thing as far yeah.
1: as, Hey, at least he doesn't need to wear that like silly visor when he welds. That's true. Yeah. All right. Let's do excavation. It sounds fun.
0: Okay. Um,
1: <clears throat> is a, and... is a bio scanner like a, like a radar for, yeah, painting? it'll
0: scan yeah. for, uh, Life forms life I guess. signs sweet um which will be good for you know trying to locate
1: Jonesy the cat
0: humans on the ship, or you know whatever kind of potential, assuming that the mon the monster you encounter is uh biological in some way Ooh,
1: yeah, I like that
0: uh which is always you know i mean that that right there is a trope of alien space horror movies as you pull up the bioscanner and you watch the thing that shouldn't be there moving closer to you on the radar. Oh, so cool. Yeah,
1: and then when you mix in like it's right in front of you. No, it's not. It's right on top of you. No, it's not. You know, oh, man.
0: It is in the same space as me. I don't know if that's up, down, left, right. Uh, I'm
1: getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I love Um, Alien. I love those movies. All of them. They're just yeah, right up my it's alley. It's so
0: good. Yeah. Uh, and so the last thing we do for character creation, this is probably my favorite part of character creation. Uh, so every character in Mothership starts with a trinket and a patch of some sort on their equipment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you roll them randomly. And I love the way that like it informs your character
1: yeah, because it's if I remember, it's not a mechanical thing. It's more of just a flavor thing.
0: Yeah, it is absolutely I, like the trinket. You might be able to find a way to use like mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like one of the options is a BB gun. So like not <laughs> super effective, but like you might find a use for it. The patch is pure flavor, where it's just yeah. like a back patch on your jacket.
1: Oh, this is interesting. I rolled a thirty, which is ashes of a relative
0: interesting
1: yeah Yeah. you know that's so weird i'm gonna go with that
0: yeah uh, what does that mean for an android exactly i like that okay so ashes i'm
1: just gonna write that down because i will forget and then uh page
0: 20 yep so now we're gonna roll for what your patch says and they have uh some absolutely hilarious
1: uh, Let's see. I rolled a 56, which is a Soviet hammer and sickle. All right. Interesting.
0: Is, so we've got uh, a communist robot carrying around the ashes of a relative.
1: Oh, that's funny. All right. Cool.
0: Yeah. And like, I love the little details. Like, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, like this is obviously a post-Earth story in some way, whether people have traveled off of Earth or um, Earth has been destroyed entirely. Uh, But something like an android with a Soviet hammer and sickle is such an evocative... Like, were you built by the Russians before they had to flee Earth? Uh, Did you just happen upon a hammer and sickle and, like, the aesthetics of it?
1: You know what? I like to think that... um he doesn't understand what it means. And he thinks the patch symbolizes like hard work and industriousness. (laughs) And so he's like, I'm a very useful worker. Look, you see my patch.
0: I am a hammer and a sickle.
1: Yeah.
0: And that makes so much sense for someone who is both like, sort of has a like very specific skill, like hacking. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. He's a very useful tool. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, like, you are both a hammer and a sickle.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And everyone, you know, everyone else knows what this old, like, uh, relic of a symbol means, but he's just, it's just not in his programming, so he just didn't get that.
0: Oh, that is so good. I love <laughs> it.
1: He doesn't understand why sometimes people will call him Sputnik, because that is not his name.
0: That's <laughs> oh, so good.
1: He always just very calmly corrects them. It doesn't help that his name is Ivan, though.
0: Uh, that is uh, an unfortunate <laughs> uh, conflation of two things yeah, that yeah. Ivan just does not understand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think he probably just figures there's, you know, another model out there that people are more familiar with. He's but- He's not familiar with it, but... Actually, that brings me to a question I had in this universe. Are the uh, are the androids kind of like sneaky like Ash in Alien or, you know, indistinguishable and kind of mixing in or does everyone kind of know who they are and they're still uncomfortable or is that to be spelled out still?
0: That's something, like, one of the cool things about Mothership, uh, and, like, that they're doing this a lot, even in, like, Borg, which has this, like, specific setting. Mm-hmm. So much of it is left up to the table to decide.
1: Mm-hmm. I like uh,
0: that. So that would be a, a question, I guess, I have for you. Like, with the, with the Android fear save thing, mm-hmm. it's obvious that, like, even if you don't know someone, it is definitely an Android. Mm-hmm. There's something about androids that make them unsettling to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what for you? What would be more interesting? Like,
1: um, I think that I think that in his world, people know he's an android, and they are unsettled by that. Um, partly because a good percentage of the Android uh, population are kind of hidden identity androids. And it makes people distrustful of even the ones that they do know of.
0: That makes sense.
1: Because androids are often used for secret missions, espionage, that kind of thing. Um, Not officially maybe, but he's, you know, he's the helpful kind. He's the, he's the worker drone and he just wants to do his job.
0: I like that. I think that'll be an interesting thing to play with a little bit. Like that idea of like claiming an identity Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so openly that like most androids either like aren't programmed to or don't want to Mm -hmm. uh, claim that android identity. I like it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh,
1: android shaming that goes on, if not outright bigotry. But they're integrated into pretty much every facet of our
0: life at this point.
1: So hard to get away
0: from them. Thank you to Billy Blue for joining me to play Mothership. Thank you to Sean McCoy for designing such an awesome game. And thank you to you for listening. Our theme song is Everybody Knows My Name by Harley Poe. Thank you to Joe Whiteford for letting us use it. Check out Greetings from Stability on October 31st. And join us back here on November 3rd for the start of our mothership adventure with Billy Blue. Until then, remember that you are strong, you are beautiful, and you are not alone.